0: This week on the Garden DC podcast, we're joined by Jonathan Bardzik. He is a chef, storyteller, and book author. Welcome, Jonathan.
1: Thank you, Kathy.
0: So it's great to have you here on the podcast. Finally, I've been wanting to have you on for some time now.
1: It is so great to be with you.
0: So we're going to talk all about what we can prepare for Thanksgiving from our own gardens and also a little bit about what we can grow year-round and prepare in the kitchen and talk about your cookbooks and everything else. But first, we want to talk about you, Jonathan, and a little bit about your background so our listeners can get to know you. Uh, In Washington Gardener Magazine, we had profiled you way back in our February 2015 issue. If anybody wants to look that up, they can check that out. But for the podcast listeners, let's let them know, are you a native Washingtonian?
1: I am not. I grew up in western Massachusetts uh, and moved down here back in 2003. So I'm, I'm at, what, 18 years now. So I'm I hope closing in on it maybe, but uh, originally from, from up in Mass. And so also uh, a little bit of gardening transplant originally from a Zone 5.
0: Hmm. So you'd had to make that little bit of adjustment, but not too hard, I don't think.
1: No, not too bad. Uh, it, quite frankly, it was a lot of pleasure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's always best when you can move south to a to a slightly warmer, because most of us do have zonal MV right for the one right below us. Yep, it's it's a lot tougher to go backwards in zones, <laughs> and so we always ask our guests. Do you have chlorophyll in your veins? Were you born with a green thumb or did you come to gardening later in life?
1: My parents opened a, a garden center and nursery the year that I was born. So I uh, it, it definitely runs through my veins. I think I had my, my first vegetable garden uh, certainly by the age of seven or eight. Um, my parents at, at our family's home in Western Mass still refer to Two of the gardens on property is mine, although I've not had my hand significantly in them in a little while. Uh, And I I did spend my childhood growing up and work professionally uh, through my 20s in the garden center business.
0: Wow, that was quite ambitious of your parents for a new baby and a new business at the same time.
1: Yeah, my my dad had just finished completing a PhD in plant and soil science, decided that academia was not for him, and turned around and opened this business.
0: Hmm. And so did you pursue the same thing in your education?
1: I did not. I, I went to Colby College up in Waterville, Maine, and ended up pursuing a performing arts major.
0: And that kind of brings us full circle to the storytelling, right?
1: Absolutely. Right. I I feel in, you know, looking backwards that all of this lays out so cleanly. So I, I grew up, the first thing I wanted to do before horticulture was teach uh, and then went into performance and then into horticulture and then got my MBA and then worked for a trade association and, and got an understanding of how Washington works. And, now I cook in front of live audiences and teach and tell stories so it's it's performance it's plants uh and and it is food all for live audiences
0: and let's not forget about your cookbooks too
1: i so i'm if if we can call a second edition of something a fourth book
0: mm-hmm. uh, I
1: just published my fourth book this summer second edition, of my first one, so it is and they have been such a joy. They they combine farm fresh seasonal, farm and garden fresh seasonal recipes and the stories and tips that I share when I am cooking with audiences at farm markets.
0: And so that, I think that's when I originally met you, Jonathan, was I believe it was at DuPont Circle Farmer's Market or it could have been at the Mid-Atlantic Nursery Trade uh, Show Mance where you were doing a herb demo there. Yes, And so that was all about showing how people could use fresh herbs that they grow in their kitchen windows and then incorporate those into everyday recipes
1: you know one of the things that i i've always loved about being able to grow small plants like herbs i you know i see people sprouting the uh, the bottoms of their scallions that they chop off Um, growing a little something at home even if the entire meal the entire dish is not homegrown I feel more connected to it when I've grown at least a little bit of it.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's always nice to be able to say that something from your harvest is part of that Thanksgiving dinner that we're going to be talking about.
1: Absolutely. And and it's a great time of year for harvest.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, That's what Thanksgiving is all about. Uh, Obviously, people say it's family and getting together, but at its heart, it is a harvest celebration. It's about the bounty and sharing of that with each other. And so it's great to be able to say, I grew this in my garden. And maybe if you're a guest, bring something to the host, or if you are the host, being able to share that with your guests.
1: Absolutely. And it's it's one of my favorite seasons, speaking of what we can grow in, in our gardens at this time of year. It's one of my favorite seasons for vegetables. It is brassica season. Um, and, and for listeners who aren't familiar with those, that's everything that, that's all the mustard and cabbagey plants, right? So um, kale, cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, bok choy, arugula, and even the seed that is used to make canola oil.
0: And do you get Brussels sprouts before Thanksgiving from your garden, Jonathan? Because that's always been a complication for me, that they just don't come in early enough.
1: I don't. They're they're always a little late for me. I <laughs> Brussels sprouts at this time of year are still coming from the farmer's markets.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're starting them probably earlier in a high tunnel or protected area in the summertime, so they can get the head start on that.
1: Yeah, but broccoli, cauliflower look gorgeous right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, in our small DC garden, I will use kale as, as both an ornamental and an edible um, when I am planting containers up for fall. And so we can, as those, the rest of those containers are fading, we can go harvest the kale from them and and enjoy them as part of the Thanksgiving meal.
0: And that's a great thing to share, Jonathan, is that the so-called ornamental kale and cabbages that you buy at the garden center are actually edible. They might not be the best tasting of kale and cabbage, but you can actually eat them.
1: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, if, if you're planting in August or September, even a, a young lacinato kale plant in November is still looking great and tastes delicious.
0: And how do you prepare your kale, Jonathan? I find kale to be a bit tough, especially raw. so how do you make it palatable?
1: So I think kale has three major issues uh, number one, it can take a long time to cook. Number two, it can feel like you are chewing on the clippings from the the front yard, the grass clippings <laughs> and uh, and number three, it can be a little bitter. So I have a few solutions to that. Number one is. I always remove the the ribs, the the thick rib from the middle of the leaf. That's the long cooking part. The, the rest of the leaf cooks fairly quickly. You can saute that in five to seven minutes. So that's how I solve the time problem. In terms of the texture, I will take my leaves and stack them, just like sheets of paper, roll them up the long way like a cigar, and thinly slice them, and that's a, a classic French cut called the chiffonade that's gonna give you a much nicer texture once you go to eat them. And then in terms of bitterness, there are two solutions. One is with some additional flavor. So a classic trick, and and this is used in in African cooking and Italian cooking, um, is to add a little heat. And so a, a pinch of red pepper flakes, a little splash of hot sauce will balance out some of that bitterness. And then also using something on the warmer side uh, like toasted nuts is a great solution or seeds. And then the final thing is choosing your variety. So I find that that the least bitter kale, also the one without all those roughly edges, which can feel a little rough in your mouth, is, is lacinato or dinosaur kale.
0: I love that uh, chiffonade tip because I always feel fancy, even though I don't have the best <laughs> knife skills. I can do chiffonade. I can do that. <laughs> and, uh,
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and... uh That explains why people add a dash of hot sauce to their greens. So thank you so much for sharing that because I had no idea. I just thought, you know, people like things a little bit on the hot side. (laughs) And so I was thinking about what you said again about brassicas and some of the, the fun cauliflower and broccoli family. And at the farmer's market last weekend, I was looking at those beautiful Romanesco cauliflowers. Wow. And how do you uh, prepare those? Do you just break them up and serve them raw because they're so beautiful. And if, if listeners aren't familiar with them, those are the ones that look like um, these kind of, I don't know even how to describe them. Jonathan, I was going to say kind of pyramidical Fibonacci sequence, really cool chartreuse color cauliflowers.
1: Exactly. It's a perfect description. So Romanesco is a, is a hybrid of broccoli and cauliflower. Um, and tastes exactly like you would expect it to. It has some of the the creaminess and the structure of cauliflower with that that chlor those chlorophyll notes of broccoli um speaking of fibonacci it it has a math connection, so uh for people digging way back in their memory to trig or calculus, uh you may remember hearing about fractals and and if you're our age kathy, you probably remember that cart being wheeled in from AV into your classroom with the TV and the VCR strapped down to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there was a, a video of a paisley with little paisleys around the edge and you would keep falling towards it and realize that the paisleys around the edge were always the same shape as the larger paisley. So that's a fractal and that's what Romanesco is. So that the whole cone is the same structure as the individual cones and and even little tiny cones on top of those. Your, your high school math teacher loves me right now. So in, in terms of, uh, in terms of cooking them, um, I usually either blanch or steam just like I would broccoli or cauliflower, um, and play up those flavors. So I have, uh, I blanched them and mixed them in a salad with, Um, black quinoa or black lentils before, which is a beautiful way to serve it, um, with like a nice cider and grainy mustard vinaigrette, maybe a little maple syrup. And sure, toss with some uh, pancetta if you cook them and and sort of finish them in the pancetta fat uh, is a great way to serve them. But any way that you would serve broccoli or cauliflower is going to taste delicious with Romanesco. And and speaking of how beautiful they look, they, they hold up pretty well um, out of the refrigerator for a few hours. So I often buy a few perfect heads and incorporate them into the middle of my Thanksgiving table.
0: Yeah. They're so gorgeous. It's almost a shame to eat them. (laughs) (laughs) And they're, and they're so pretty, you know, that, that could be just your centerpiece right there. You don't need anything else.
1: No, I, I will often just, uh, mix a few of those in with some smaller pumpkins and squash, um, if, if you can find the, the little stems of kale florets that sometimes show up at florists this time of year, uh, that itself is a beautiful centerpiece and, and represents the food that we're eating. Hmm.
0: And another brassica I wanted to ask you about because we're growing this in our own community garden plot, our, the interns and I, which is bok choy or pak choy. And we're looking at the best way that we can share that on Thanksgiving.
1: Gosh, what would I do with that for Thanksgiving? So, if you if you harvest it small, if you've got the the baby bok choy, mm-hmm. um, I would consider braising them um, in a little bit of chicken stock. If you wanted to play with flavor, I might think of putting in some star anise and maybe a couple chili peppers uh, in that brine. Uh, you could put some Szechuan peppercorns in there. I think that that having dishes that are both green and have a little heat to them makes such a big difference on Thanksgiving when you you have this wonderfully rich and heavy meal. And I love all the Thanksgiving carbs, but if that's all that we have, it kind of overwhelms our palate and puts it to sleep. And so I think giving your palate some of those those welcome vegetal, green vegetable and and spicy breaks in there a little bit of acidity makes such a great difference in the menu. So the baby ones I would simply braise. Um if I was using larger ones, big tip on cooking bok choy is that the stems are going to cook take more time to cook than your leaves. And so if you don't want either undercooked stems or overcooked leaves, I always separate those slice up the stems thinly and start cooking those first and then chiffonade the leaves and add those in toward the end of the cooking time. And I might just do a, a quick stir fry. If you wanted to kind of play on a mix of Asian inspiration, meaning Americana cooking, um, instead of finishing it with soy sauce and rice vinegar, Uh, I might still cook it with a little bit of ginger, but finish it with some Worcestershire and apple cider vinegar.
0: Mm, That sounds like a really bright, complex, and like you said, a little bit of acidic texture there to balance out that Thanksgiving meal.
1: Right. That next to the mashed potatoes and gravy is is a marriage made in heaven.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm all about the mashed potatoes and gravy, Jonathan, though. I have to say... It's all about the sides for me. I don't even care about the turkey. I don't even care if a turkey never hits my plate. It's all about those sweet potatoes, mashed potatoes, all the starches, all the good breads and buns and everything else. And, you know, maybe there'll be a little bit of vegetables on the side.
1: Absolutely. So speaking about sweet potatoes um, and the garden, so here's even if, if you don't have the space to grow sweet potatoes, I'm guessing most of your listeners have space to grow some herbs. Mm-hmm. And I was just doing an event last night, and it's uh, we one of the recipes that we made. It was a Friendsgiving event uh, down at the Collective Apartment Buildings in uh, Southeast D.C. I'm, this dish is going to show up on my own table this year for Thanksgiving. It is roasted sweet potatoes with a chive brown butter chimichurri. Mm. Chimichurri, you may know, is a, a traditional Argentinian sauce that is usually used over grilled beef. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it combines oregano, parsley, onion, garlic, uh, red wine, vinegar, olive oil, and some heat. And so we we played with that, swapping out the oregano for chives from the garden and, uh, and browning some butter and using that instead of the olive oil. And it's just, it's a delicious combination. It was sort of surprisingly fall uh in flavor given the ingredients but it it goes together so beautifully
0: Hmm. and you know what jonathan it occurs to me that I should have put a warning at the beginning of this podcast episode that you don't want to listen to this with an empty stomach. (laughs) Maybe you have a snack, maybe take some time now to get a cup of tea or a glass of wine and and some (laughs) some cheese and crackers to sustain you through um, while you're listening to all these wonderful dishes and preparations. (laughs) And maybe we should also roll back a little bit to talk about your garden and where you are in the city. So you're in Pretty much the heart of Washington D.C. You can stroll over to the Capitol Building should you wish so. So, maybe let our listeners know a little bit about what you're growing.
1: Sure. We, uh, my husband Jason and I live in Eckington, which is about, gosh, maybe a mile and a half north of the Capitol Building. So we're in a, a D.C. row house with a postage stamp backyard. Um, we decided early on that we we did not need to park a car back there. So most of it is uh, a mix of ornamental and edible. Garden. One of the one of the challenges being in the heart of the city is we have some uh, some interesting animal pests. So we actually have a, a small cage that we've built in the backyard for containers, and I have some some standard herbs in there. Uh, there are always both Chinese and, and regular chives and the round chives, so flat and round chives. Uh, several types of basil, epizote, sage. Greek and Italian oregano. This year we grew a couple different kinds of pie bird chilies and, uh, and some Italian sweet peppers. I have two different kinds, both French and English, thyme growing in, uh, in window boxes off the back porch. And, and I have a spot in the front yard. I, well, we have a few edibles in the front yard. There is a bushel and berries, a, a branded line of, of ve- uh, fruiting plants. And they came out with this great, fairly low-growing, thornless red raspberry. So we have a hedge across the the front of our yard of red raspberries that produce fruit for a solid month and a half in early summer, which is heaven. Uh, and I just put in some low-growing blueberries uh, this year in the front yard. But my maybe the proudest edible in my yard, anyone who's lived in a D.C. row house knows that you have that, that 10 to 12-inch bed between you and the neighbor. Right, and nothing else fits in there. Right, when I moved in, I thought God, a lavender hedge would look beautiful, a boxwood hedge would be beautiful. And as I thought about them, I realized three years after planting them, I'd have to be ripping them out and replacing them because they just all get too wide. So I needed something that would stay pretty, that I could at least keep tall and narrow, that would be happy enough growing that way. Right, because the the other thing that that just pains me when I see it, landscapes are Plants put in the wrong place and and pruned within an inch of their lives. And you can tell they're just tortured, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to keep them somewhere that they never want to be. So there's a great cultivar of rosemary called barbecue, which grows very tall and straight. And so we have a, a 10 to 12 foot long hedge of rosemary growing along the side of our sidewalk in the front yard. And, we, have, we always have plenty of rosemary both to eat, and as we prune it to keep it from getting too wide, the neighbors always have plenty of rosemary also.
0: Yeah, that's one of the cases with rosemary is it soon becomes a hedge, and you're soon sharing it with everybody. And I was going to ask about those raspberries you have out front. Do you actually get to eat any of the fruit, or do the birds come in and strip a lot of that from you?
1: They are so heavy-bearing that we get plenty of it. Oh, great. Yeah, it's a really impressive cultivar.
0: Nice. And do you have enough to make preserves with or just eat them out of hand right there?
1: Usually eat them out of hand. we get, um, you know, I think if I was a little more diligent, we could get a a batch of preserves made a year. Um, But I would say I probably get three pints over the course of the season. So certainly enough to to enjoy on a few desserts and with some morning oatmeal.
0: Mm -hmm. I love raspberries so much. And speaking of preserves and what we can bring to the Thanksgiving table, even if you don't grow it in your own garden, you can certainly go to a, a pick your own farm or to the local farmer's market and buy some peaches or other fruit and make some preserves that you could use or like a chutney or that type of thing. Um, what's one of your favorite ones for like a quick compote or something for the Thanksgiving table?
1: So uh, growing up in New England, I am definitely partial to cranberries and there are, there's so many ways to use them um, from making compotes to jello molds and easy flavors like orange and pearl or chipolini onions, um, black walnuts, which are a are available, you can forage or I guess you could plant a black walnut tree on your property if you had enough space.
0: Yeah, a lot, a lot of space. Yes. Lot. <laughs>
1: so those, are, those are all, those are definitely local right now. In terms of things that you are likely to either pick your own locally or, or pick up from the farmer's market, I'd say I'm, I'm really partial to pears and apples this time of year. We get such beautiful pears in this area. And there's just no comparison to, to a local pear from the grocery store, right? The the grocery store, We, my husband and I, in fact, were eating one last night and commenting on the fact that grocery store pears literally like cut into your gums. They're so hard. And this was so incredibly flavorful and and just kind of melted in your mouth. And there's a recipe I developed a few years ago for a pear, cranberry, and pink peppercorn compote, which... I love putting on the Thanksgiving table.
0: That sounds really delicious. And I agree with you on grocery store pears that <laughs> <laughs> you really need to go to a pick your own place or a farm stand or a farmer's market to get the best pears. Although some of the Asian grocery stores do have some of the nicer pear qualities.
1: At, yeah, they seem to have a, a different standard, I think. You know, I was. I was over in Paris with my parents back in in 2019, uh, and we went to a beautiful street market. And my dad went off to get fruit while I shopped for for vegetables and meat and cheese. And when we got home, he pulled out this clamshell of uh, of blueberries, and from sort of a, a national grocery store brand here in the U.S. I'm, I'm guessing they're a multinational. And and I, I almost cried. I just thought, with all the beautiful food there, you bought this clamshell of blueberries. <laughs> and then I tasted one. And I mean, they were as good as sitting in the middle of a field in southern Jersey at the peak of season in June. And I thought, so we can have this quality. Just it's a matter of the consumer demanding it. And, and I think I'm sure so many of your listeners demand it by growing it themselves so that they make sure that they get that kind of quality in their food.
0: Absolutely, and yeah, I've seen that across other food categories where we're not getting, especially in the city and urban locations, you're definitely not getting the best quality produce served at your local supermarket markets. It seems that that's going elsewhere. Maybe it's going to fine dining establishments or other markets.
1: For sure, and it's it's why you know I, I and, and given the access. I mean, I do 95% of my shopping at farmers markets and, and local markets like Eastern Market here in D.C. Um, I, the good news is that the, the D.C. metropolitan area has one of the highest number of farmers markets per capita in the country. Bad news, obviously, is that we continue to have some food deserts in the area. There are um, there are organizations like um, Arcadia's Center for Sustainable Agriculture that I know have Mobile farmers markets that they they bring into uh, converted school buses they bring into food desert communities but um, for sure I, grocery stores continue to to have secondary quality to what we can get from these small local producers.
0: Mm-hmm. And yes, we're we're very blessed in the DC area to have so many farmers markets and to have such a great food shed around us. But yes, access can still be really tough especially in certain wards of the city. For sure. And so I was going to ask if you're not much of a cook and you know I might be looking in the mirror at myself Jonathan. <laughs> um, I I live by the microwave <laughs> and, the fri- <laughs> and the freezer because and I'm all often on the run and I wanted to bring a gift from the garden to my host or hostess. What What do you think would be a great gift for them?
1: I think that Certainly, just some fresh herbs are always wonderful, and and they're beautiful, right? I mean, you can the the different leaf shapes and colors and textures. Mm-hmm. A small ball jar vase filled with some fresh herbs that they can use in their kitchen is a wonderful gift from the garden. You know, something as as uh, as as versatile and long lasting in the fridge as a head of cabbage this time mm-hmm. of year is wonderful. I the other thing that is is not from the garden, but Certainly, is contributes to cooking anything that that is harvested from a garden would be a great bottle of olive oil. That's that's one of those products that we, you know, I'm I recognize that that all of us, no matter how much money you have, it, at some point have a budget for food, mm-hmm. and so I don't I don't think that it is worth buying the most expensive thing out there across the board. And in fact, I, I think. One of the great reasons to garden is that we can we can save some of that money. We're we're putting labor into it, um, but it's not coming out of our pocket in cash. But olive oil is worth spending a little extra money on to get something really good quality, and so I think that's a beautiful gift, and and quite frankly, one that is going to sit around your host or hostess's kitchen for a longer time than a bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know they will for for weeks or months uh, every time they pick up that bottle to saute the 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 fresh greens they're picking from their garden or when those brussels sprouts come in and they're tossing them in olive oil to to roast and caramelize in the oven they will be thinking of you
0: that's such a great idea jonathan because oftentimes too you don't know them well enough that you don't know if a bottle of wine will go over well if their household Um, even drinks alcohol, and you're like, you know, is this a weird gift or not for them? (laughs) So I think olive oil, that's a very safe and beautiful gift because, as you said, it it can be used almost every day in in many dishes. And what I did one Christmas was – I had grown so much garlic that year, and I had so many big, beautiful heads of garlic that I wrapped up like three big heads together with a bottle of olive oil, and then from a local potter, I don't know if you've seen them, Jonathan, but they're kind of like these little saucers with nubs on the bottom, like these yes. little raised edges that you take your, the clove of the garlic, not the whole head. Don't do that. Don't be crazy. <laughs> Break open, peel the clove, and then rub it on those nubs, pour a little olive oil in the dish, and then you just dip your bread into that. Mm. That's
1: a wonderful gift.
0: Yeah, that one I think I gave to almost everybody on my list. So at that point, I'm like, now I'm out of garlic. I don't even have garlic for myself. <laughs> But I do love garlic so much, and and I find that's a a great universal gift as well. That's lovely. And so I was going to turn the conversation now to the pies that we prepare for our Thanksgiving table. So we talked a little bit about fruit and pears and apples, but of course the classic is either the pumpkin pie or sweet potato pie? And are you partial to one or the other of those, Jonathan?
1: I, as a New Englander, I am definitely a pumpkin pie guy. <laughs> um, I also just, I love pumpkins. And and I know most of us in our urban gardens do not have space to grow them. Although if, if I may mention them, All America Selections mm-hmm. is a, a wonderful nonprofit and they have recognized a lot of great, food producing plants for urban garden settings. Um, In fact, we, one of the, one of the crops that we did grow earlier in the season were their mascot green bean uh, and I had four plants in a probably, I don't know, 14 inch ceramic pot. Mm -hmm. And I I got enough for four or five meals out of my first harvest. Nice. Um, So they, they may have a good smaller growing pumpkin um, with a good yield that, that you could grow in, Sort of a community garden bed. But pumpkins, and I think I love them because there is some there's some magic. You feel like you're in on a secret when you cook them because we all thought that they were just for carving and putting out the front porch. And my favorites for sure for pumpkin pie, I love a Hubbard squash. That that big blue-gray football is just such a wonderfully rich pumpkin. I think a fairy tale pumpkin makes a good pumpkin pie. And and I also think that. Curry squash and kabocha are are wonderfully rich. In fact, I I did a taste test of different squashes with my parents once. A sure sign we need to get out of the house more often. <laughs> and uh, we we did literally did a blind taste test, labeling everything A, B, C, and D, and took notes. You could easily convince me in a blind taste test that a kabocha squash was sweet potato. Wow! So makes a great pie.
0: Mm. Yeah, I I want to be in on that taste testing. That sounds really good.
1: It was fun.
0: Especially if it's if it's all pies taste testing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to I will say that I was raised with pumpkin pie, but now I'm starting to be more partial to the sweet potato pie. I'm, I'm leaning that direction now. <laughs> but I just love sweet potato everything. Sweet potato fries, sweet potato in, you know, chips, sweet potato everything is 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 my new obsession. And speaking in that same family with the squashes, there's of course butternut squash, and one of my favorite dishes, although not normally on the Thanksgiving table, is like a butter squash butter. I can't even say it now. <laughs> butternut squash ravioli.
1: Hmm. Oh, that should be on the Thanksgiving table.
0: That's what I think. More, 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 and more.
1: There's a period in my life when my family traveled out to uh, one of my aunts husband's family uh, out on the the North Fork of Long Island and, and they are Brooklyn Italian. And that definitely would have been home on that, at home on that Thanksgiving table. The uh, the stuffed artichokes were amazing.
0: Hmm. And that does bring up that artichokes are a little tough for us here in the Mid-Atlantic to grow. You can usually get a good sized plant, but you might not get the harvest by the end of the season. But this year we've had such a long and warm fall that I think those who did roll the dice and grew artichoke this year might actually be able to get a decent harvest out of it.
1: It would have been worth it. I I still have a handful of peppers to pick out in the backyard. I mean, this season's been so long.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been grateful that uh, we're still pulling out tomatoes and still having, of course, those peppers. But one of the things that I love in the fall is the spinach, and that really needs a zap of cold weather for it to get really that those nice sugars developed in it.
1: Absolutely. And kale is the same way. In fact, all all late season and winter greens take on this really beautiful sweetness once they get hit with a little bit of frost.
0: And I guess we can make them sweet ourselves if they don't quite develop that while they're growing in your garden.
1: We can. I, there, I mean, there's so many great flavors with greens. You know, one thing that, that pops to mind, speaking about homegrown spinach, is so much of the spinach that I see in the grocery store now is is just baby spinach for salads. In fact, sometimes it's hard to find field spinach or, or mm-hmm. that spinach, you know, with more substance in the leaves. There's a, a recipe that I love. In fact, I, I included it in one of the episodes of uh, my new TV series, which I just launched this past spring and its it 's spinach tossed in a bacon fat hot bacon fat vinaigrette, and if you toss that hot vinaigrette with baby spinach, it just melts out into a puddle. this you know winter spinach with that great structure to the leaves, it wilts it just slightly and it 's beautiful.
0: well, you had me at bacon, Jake well, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I often see that that people are making dishes with those baby leaf spinach that they're getting in the like the clam shell at the grocery store and i'm yeah. like i don't think that's supposed to be this dish <laughs> i think it's you need to go somewhere else or grow your own spinach which is one of the easiest greens i've found to grow actually uh, spinach is
1: so wonderfully easy and so rewarding
0: and another super easy especially if you're a beginning vegetable gardener to grow is radishes and so I wanted to make a little plug there for if you have, say, a crudite platter before your Thanksgiving feast, maybe while watching the game or something, or if you just have it on the side of your Thanksgiving banquet Banquet that you include some radishes in there. And they don't all have to be those sharp, you know, really spicy ones that uh, some people are turned off by. There are milder versions of radishes.
1: You know, the other thing about radishes, and I I find this with with members of the Brassica family, quite frankly, especially things like turnips and rutabaga, which I always just heard people complain about until I cooked them fresh from the farm market for the first time. They develop a lot of their sharper flavors as they age, as they lose some moisture. Mm -hmm. And so harvesting them fresh from the garden, uh, soaking them in ice water for a few minutes before you plate them up for everyone, that will keep those flavors a little cleaner and, and more peppery and less just hot and sharp. I also find, and I don't know if, if you had heard of this combination. I feel like I'd heard of it for years and it never made any sense. It almost seemed like a, a British saying, but combining radishes and butter. Mm-hmm. And, and the first time I did it, I realized why it was talked about, that radishes with just a little bit of good fat uh, are beautiful. So whether that is butter or, a, you know, a nice um, homemade green goddess dressing, uh, it, it's a wonderful way to start the, the day off. And again, we, we have plenty of starchy food, starchy and heavy food coming. So we, we don't need those heavier hors d'oeuvres to fill us up ahead of time.
0: Yeah. And I think those that's how the French breakfast radish got its name. by. You know, being the favorite of the french to have like on a slice of really good bread with some Mm. butter and then just sliced really thinly the radish on top of that
1: absolutely i will i don't get it out uh lightly but i will often get out my my v slicer or my mandolin with radishes so i can get really thin slices i'll still pile them on but there is something wonderful about having them that thinly sliced
0: yeah i'm terrified of the mandolin jonathan (laughs) i have to say (laughs) i had purchased one with great ambition for like making pickles of different vegetables and then it sat in the cabinet because i just didn't want to you know scrape my knuckles on that thing so i definitely will have somebody else do that slicing for me
1: so first of all you're in good company when i um when i first got mine. Uh, I was using it to make some creamed corn. It was a fast way to get the corn off the cob. And my husband came in and said I was making a mess, and he jumped in to take over, and with the first pass, caught himself. It was yikes. a bad cut, but he just... And and he... This was sort of the foundation of, of one of the guidelines in our relationship, which is, if you don't want to be asked to do something again, make sure you do it poorly the first time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I... Still, always scared me. I would I would use it carefully, but a couple of years ago, I saw a recommendation for buying these these slicing gloves, and they come in in different weights. Uh, you can get them. You can get ones that are durable enough that you could use it on like a deli commercial deli slicer. Um, but I have one that I can literally run it right into the blade of my mandolin without going through the glove. And and so now I use it with so much ease and confidence. It was totally worth it. And they're, I don't know, six to ten dollars a pair and you can find them right online easily.
0: Great. Yeah, I'll definitely check out that tip because I'm like so, you know, scared even of a box grater sometimes.
1: <laughs> I have done more harm to myself with a box grater than mm-hmm. I ever have with a knife or a mandolin.
0: Yeah, I just see people go at it, <laughs> and it's the the aggression that scares me, too, on that. <laughs> so rounding out our vegetables that are coming from our gardens, hopefully, to, and making it to our Thanksgiving table, if you planted your carrots early enough, you might be able to have some of those baby carrots and sharing those. And are you a cooked carrot or a raw carrot person, Jonathan?
1: I am a both. Huh. I like them both ways. I think they need to be cooked carefully. One of the interesting things about carrots is that they actually have more available nutrition to our bodies when they are cooked than when they are raw. One of my one of my favorite ways to prepare them, and, and this was actually also in an episode of uh, my TV show, which, by the way, is called Jonathan's Kitchen. It, it came out eight seasonal re- episodes all based on Garden and Farm Fresh Food uh, came out this last May. So I will uh, I will saute some shallot, add in a little bit of apricot preserves and some white balsamic vinegar and steam the carrots until they're crisp, tender, and then finish them off in that sauce. And, and oh, and a, a pinch of red pepper flakes to give them just a little bit of heat. I've served them to so many people who hate cooked carrots and think they're delicious.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I can go either way, but I definitely tend to be more on the the raw carrots. I I just love the the fresh snap of them, and also how sweet they are just naturally.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the sugars are beautiful. Mm -hmm.
0: Especially the baby carrots when you get them. As you said, with a lot of the root vegetables, when they are left in the ground for too long, they get woody and tough, and then they kind of get that... I don't know what you call it—a bitter flavor to it, or more like a, a mellowness too, as well.
1: For sure, and I, you know, one thing that being a New Englander uh, and being a gardener, I think we we tend to be thrifty people, right? Gardeners, gardeners like to use everything up and and are very aware of waste. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I would not be afraid of is is if you're, for instance, if you're leaving your carrots in the ground to harvest over the winter, which most of the time, you can do here in the DC area, uh, and they do develop those those thick, paler cores. Feel free to cut around those. That that core does get to a point where it is too woody and too tough and not fun to eat, um, or save those for for making soups and stocks. But it it is it's okay to cut around the middle of
0: that. And maybe you have a, a pet or something that might want that middle core. Or a compost pile. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, or the compost pile that that can always be fed any time of year. And so let's talk, because we're talking about frugal now, um, how about those carrot tops? Do you prepare those at all?
1: I will sometimes prepare them. I've certainly made pesto with them. I have put them into soup. I have, um, they, they have sort of a, a, um, hay scented kind of dill flavor to them. So, um, I will use them in place of dill if I have them around and I'm feeling ambitious. One of the things that I, I have learned and I'd learned it watching a friend who's a farmer. Um, he just wasn't afraid to throw away food. He would, and and food that he grew, uh, not, not from the refrigerator, eggs from the chickens. If, you know, he wasn't happy with, them. We'd go through a a field of tomatoes and 20% of them that that he had, they weren't a a commercial crop for him. He just grew them for fun every year. Um, Half of them would be laying on the ground. And, And it looked like such waste to me until I realized all of this is getting composted and returning right back into the ground and providing nutrients for future crops. So I think looking at things like carrot tops, one one thing that I have seen recently is farmers who will let you cut those carrot tops off at their stands at the farmers markets hmm. uh, and take them home with them. The the other thing is there is a, a robust and I think there are two or three organizations in DC with composting programs that do weekend drop offs at farmers markets. So even though you know we've we've talked about composting here and suggested that maybe with our, uh, our local population of rodents, which Jason Lovinger refers to as baby puppies uh, <laughs> for the footprints that they leave in the snow in the winter. Um, but we've decided maybe composting is, is not a great attractor for them, um, but we are able to, to get some of that green waste composted by dropping it off at our farmer's market.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as long as it's not going into landfill, you know creating methane out of that um and rotting in there if as long as it's going back into the system i think it's all good
1: absolutely yeah it's it's just a you know keeping it out of your trash can Mm -hmm. is is the number one goal
0: Mm. and so we're coming up to our end time now. And I was going to ask if there was any group of vegetables or herbs that we didn't discuss that we might use on the Thanksgiving table. And one that just popped into my head is parsley. Um, Because I feel like, you know, that's one of the ignored herbs. We talk about the Mediterranean herbs a lot, but not so much uh, the parsley end of things.
1: I I probably use more parsley than anything else. I have a, a window box on the back porch with three plants in it. Um, or a, a planter, and I I still probably buy one to two bunches of parsley a week on top of what I harvest from that. I think it's sort of the most neutral herb that you can use. It's the least distinct flavor. It adds a little bit of mild, pleasant bitterness mm-hmm. that we get from from to green plants. It has that chlorophyll, so it adds freshness. Um, I think it's such a wonderful way to finish a dish, and in the, in the same way that. I probably rarely finish anything without adding some acidity, and usually that's a splash of vinegar. Probably also rarely serve something without a pinch of herbs over the top. And if I don't have a, a distinct thought in mind um, with an, an herb flavor profile, I can always reach for parsley. So I would I would pick two to three bunches up. I know a lot of people at this time of year. I certainly will be doing it tomorrow. We'll make some turkey stock or chicken stock that they have on hand for their stuffing. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll have it on hand to make gravy with. Turkey soup after Thanksgiving is over with the carcass. Um, and one of the ingredients in that is parsley. So what I will do, because the the stems of parsley have great flavor, um, but the the bottom stems below where the leaves are growing are, are tougher than we want to put into the food that we eat. So I will cut those bottom stems off of the bunches of parsley, use those to flavor my stock, and then save the leaves to put into the dishes.
0: Great advice. And I've been really successful the last few winters of getting my parsley to winter over and come back. And basically, it's a perennial herb for me here um, right outside the city. And I don't know if you've had that same success since yours is in a raised window box.
1: I have. The one, I, I will ask you this question, because mm-hmm. um, it's the one issue I have with it, is they really seem to want to go to seed mm-hmm. pretty quickly in the second season.
0: Yeah, that's definitely the case. You can get it to winter over and be almost perennial, and then it's going to trigger that bolting process and then go to seed, but then just collect that seed and start a new crop. So start a new window box and just pop that back in. So then you could have fresh plants all, all throughout the year.
1: Awesome. I will, I will do that next year.
0: Yeah, because I feel like bolting, I used to be so upset, right? When plants would bolt, especially <laughs> cilantro. And then you're like, well, now I have coriander and now I have seed and now I have fresh seed for next year. So I'm always looking for now. I want things to bolt because I want to collect those seeds from them and have them, especially the plants that are really hard to grow from older seed and that's a Mm -hmm. lot of our greens like lettuces that has to be very fresh seed for it to germinate so you want to you want to actually collect as much of that as you can same thing with the radishes i I like to let the last row of radishes go to seed and collect those and the seed is edible too it's kind of like a peppercorn type little accent on there but of course you can also uh, save of a bit of those seeds the ones you're not going to eat for growing for next year or next growing season
1: oh i'm so excited to plant some spring radishes now
0: yay all right so let's let listeners know about your television show and where they can catch that
1: sure so the show is called jonathan's kitchen seasons to taste it's based on my second cookbook it's eight episodes of of farm and garden fresh seasonal food and and good friends uh, and culinary experts from the D.C. area. And you can find that on a network called Reverie. It's R-E-V-R-Y, and it's available anywhere that you stream TV. So from your Apple TV, Roku, or Amazon Fire Stick uh, to your phone or your computer.
0: Great. And then your books. I assume we can order all of them off of Amazon, but do you have a direct website where we can order them off of?
1: I do. If you if you need it fast, if you need it in two days, Amazon is the place to go. I also carry some inventory of all my books, so if you would like a signed and inscribed copy, you can order it directly from my website, JonathanBardzik.com and I sign and inscribe every copy that goes out.
0: And for listeners, Jonathan's name is J-O-N A-T-H-A-N and then B-A-R-D-Z-I-K, correct?
1: Yes, and that's That's my website, it's my handle on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, I for, gosh, six or seven years now, every week before Thanksgiving, I do a helpline and I'll be starting mine uh, Sunday, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, going through Wednesday. And on either Instagram or over on Facebook, I will answer any question that people have about prepping their Thanksgiving meal.
0: Great, and what is your most common question that you usually get, Jonathan?
1: gosh i would probably food safety questions around the turkey are the the biggest thing that make people nervous
0: Mm -hmm. i can imagine that yeah you don't want to have that pink meat out on the table right (laughs) (laughs) that's one good thing about the vegetables is undercooked is a-okay
1: absolutely in fact i i prefer them slightly on the crisper side rather than rather than mush
0: Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, and thanks for sharing what's going to be on your Thanksgiving table and some of those recipes and ideas and what we can be growing in our garden and maybe even thinking towards next Thanksgiving of what we might want to be growing.
1: It's what, less than uh, than 372 days away.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can never be planning too early.
1: Kathy, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure.
0: And thank you again.
1: it
0: Making a lush outdoor living area, you'll crave spending time in. The Urban Garden: 101 Ways to Grow Food and Beauty in the City comes out this spring. You can pre-order it now
1: at Amazon.com and Bookshop.org. Japanese Maple Plant Profile.
0: Japanese Maple. Acer palmatum is a small tree with beautiful foliage colors. There are hundreds of Japanese maple varieties from dwarf forms to larger landscape specimens. This elegant and graceful tree offers year round interest with its sculptural branch forms and pretty bark. The differences in varieties are amazing with some Japanese maple trees having leaves of red and purple hues to greens and yellows and even variegated forms. These can turn brilliant colors in the autumn and are showstoppers in the garden. There are also big differences in the leaf shapes from highly dissected and almost lacy foliage to the larger, more palm-like ones. Japanese maple trees are generally hardy from zones five to eight. They can be container grown or planted in the ground. They prefer locations with bright light though it's best to sight them away from direct afternoon sun. Fall is the ideal time to plant them. They should be placed out of strong prevailing winds and protected from late spring frosts. Plant them in soil that is well draining and slightly acidic. Keep them well watered and add organic compost as a mulch around their root zone, but do not let the mulch touch the trunk. Generally, these trees need little care if you need to remove a branch, the best time to prune them is in midsummer. You should also remove any suckers that emerge from below the tree's graft point. Japanese maples, you can grow that. what's new in the garden this week? Well I brought in a large alocasia plant to winter over along with a few geraniums that I just couldn't say goodbye to and loved the colors of their bloom so I'll be overwintering them as houseplants on my windowsills and I made room for a few coleus cuttings and some begonias as well. In the local gardening world there are a couple holiday events i wanted to call your attention to one is on tuesday december 7th at 6 p.m and that is the lantern light tour at tudor place so that'll be exploring the historic house by candlelight and you get to hear stories about celebrations of winter's past that has a nominal fee for attending that and you can register at tudorplace.org Another great holiday event to look forward to is on Saturday, December 18th at 1pm in the afternoon. It is a winter solstice celebration in the garden at Greenspring Gardens. And you can register for that online through fairfaxcounty.gov parks. It's a $10 per person fee. That includes celebrating the rebirth of the sun in the beginning of winter, learning about some of the ancient rituals, uh, from the Old World Legends, Crafting, and Games. And for Garden DC, I wanted to give you a little heads up that we are going to be taking a break for the Thanksgiving holiday week and we will be back for the first week of December. While you're enjoying your Thanksgiving, I encourage you to catch up on any of our past episodes or maybe re listen to one of your past favorites. Have a great Thanksgiving! All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. Mintmobile.com/switch.
1: Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face-lower speeds, videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan. Auto-renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions
0: apply. If rated PG.